Howdy, everybody, and welcome to another BP Movie Journal, the show we do where we talk about the stuff we've seen since the last time we did one of these. I'm David. I'm Tyler. And uh, we're going to get started. Sorry, I just got a Politico update on my phone, a push notification on my phone, um, because, of course, the uh, second night of the Democratic debates are going on. Um, and they've still only managed to get one third of the candidates running. Well, yeah, and that's what I was disappointed with the first night because I was kind of hoping it would turn into a bloodbath and really like a literal bloodbath and thin the field a little bit. Sure. You know, I really want them to turn it or maybe just Lester Holt. Maybe could just go off <laughs> and like rip him to shreds uh, again, literally. Sure. You know I'm saying we need to we, we need to. It's to I, I predict hurt. within a month, um, five of them will be five will be gone. That's not enough. No, I know. I want but half like, of them at least out of there. I think within th- three months, half will be gone. But that still leaves a lot. That's the other thing. Yeah. You know, it's uh, because it's tough. You don't want to drop out immediately when you realize that you don't have any of the support. So people are going to stay in for a little while. Mm-hmm. Even if it's clear to them that they can't do anything here. Um and so, yeah, it's uh, I did not watch the debate. As you know, I, I try to avoid politics. Yeah, it, exa- it exhausts me. Es- but especially I, I never watch presidential debates. I usually I, I during primaries. Them. I love them I hate because them. to I me, hate it's, all of them. it's like uh, it's like watching Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross. Like you just see all these character actors uh, like yelling at each other. And <laughs> it can be a lot of fun. Um, uh, Democrat or Republican. I always enjoy it. Well, if you want the uh, Politico dot com. Uh, uh, their um, their take right apparently Kamala, Kamala Harris did very well tonight that's that's their okay. take but she was there la- last night right no you're thinking of Elizabeth Warren no it's for some reason I, it might be that because I did read a couple articles one was about last night what was anticipating tonight so it might be that I've gotten them mixed up yeah well because it was a, so it's a weird thing where they they drew the candidates, they assigned them randomly. Okay. And it ended up being that Elizabeth Warren is the only like viable like candidate top last tier night. Candidate. And then they're all, all the rest of them are there, you know, Biden yeah. Sanders, Buttigieg, they're all yeah. there tonight. Last night was, was Elizabeth Warren and Beto O'Rourke who might as well hang it up at the, at the he that came is, so hot uh, out of the gate and then he might as well hang it up. Well, he got like all of his momentum went to Buttigieg, but then also like once everyone, I think everyone liked the idea of him as like a like an RFK type, and you're, then he's like really awkward, and he's not a good public speaker, and apparently he was just destroyed in the debate. Um, so yeah. as opposed to it, one thing that surprised me as far as like who's top tier and bottom tier, I, I think Cory Booker will go up, and Julian oh, Castro, yeah. but um, they were both there I, last night. Yeah, yeah, but I'm surprised that they aren't top tier already. Uh, but I guess with this many, I felt yeah. I feel I don't actually don't know much about Julian Castro, but I kind of felt the same way about Cory Booker. Anyway, that's we're not here to talk about uh, yeah. this. I read about this stuff all day long. We are here to talk about the movies we've seen since the last time we did one of these. And I'm going to start with a couple. Uh, I'm going to start with one that I reviewed the the the, the Blu-ray for the website. Mm-hmm. And oh man, this is a hidden gem. This is uh, you know. Um, do you remember Nathan Rabin used to do like the the flops, my year of flops, my sort yes. of thing? And he would have like these categories about like yeah, fiasco right. or like, and one of them was like secret secret master- uh, secret success, secret success, failure, fiasco. Okay, so I think Joseph Losey's nineteen sixty eight boom has an exclamation point in the title. Okay, secret success. Okay, this movie is so much fun. 
uh, it's based on a Tennessee Williams play okay. called Man Bring This Up Road. And um, they changed the name to Boom. <laughs> they also changed the, uh, even the, the line in the movie now is Man Bring This Up Mountain, not Road, because okay. they changed the setting. So basically... I think it'd be funny if they just changed the line to someone saying Boom. Um, yeah, no, uh, Richard Burton says Boom a bunch of times oh, okay. in, in the movie. Um <laughs> The premise is that, so Elizabeth Taylor plays this, keep in mind, she's like 35 at the Mm -hmm. time of the movie is made. She plays like a six-time widower. It's a role written for an aging lady. She's like 35 years old. So she stars, she lives alone on this island in the Mediterranean where she's essentially like the feudal like land lady of the island. Yeah. And she has this, and she lives in this crazy house on, on a cliff and has the, these servants and she's just a lunatic. And then Richard Burton shows up one day. He's a guy who met her once in Los Angeles in Beverly Hills. And she said, if you're ever in my part of Europe, come and visit me. She makes clear she didn't mean it. She was just being nice. Right. He's just shown up and, uh, he has developed a reputation. Oh yeah. The other thing is that Elizabeth Taylor, too young for the role. Mm -hmm. Richard Burton, too old for the role. He's supposed to be a young man. Richard Burton was older than Elizabeth Taylor. Uh, apparently Joseph Losey, this is 1968. Joseph Losey wanted to cast James Fox, which would have been the, Oh sure. Uh, you know, young dashing. Mm -hmm. Uh, but anyway, he, uh, this guy has, uh, Richard Burton's character has developed a reputation for befriending rich, older ladies just before they die. Got it. And so now the, potentially terminally ill Elizabeth Taylor's character is freaking out because she thinks this guy's here to essentially kill me or his being here means. And she's also thinking like, wait, does this mean I'm old? I thought (laughs) I was like 33. Right. Yeah. Um, uh, but so basically the movie is just, it becomes two hours of them just sort of like, fretting about the, the two of them fretting about flitting about this ridiculous, uh, house uh, having conversations about death mostly. Um, he's wearing, well first, so he gets attacked by her dog when he shows up. Mm -hmm. So he, all his clothes get torn off and he gets handed a pink bathrobe. So at first he's wearing a pink bathrobe. Then she gives him a black samurai kimono complete with a sword and belt. So for most of the movie, he's walking around a black kimono with a sword, a samurai sword. She has a bunch of costume changes, including one where she uh, dresses in kabuki style with this headdress that has like it looks like I said in my review, it looks like Superman's Fortress of Solitude growing out of her head. Oh, my gosh. uh, The movie's just so much, so much fun. Uh, The commentary. I don't usually care that much for special features. Right. This one has it only has two, but they are that they are dense in quality. The commentary is by John Waters. Oh, wow. And then um, there's an extended interview uh, about the movie and its history with our friend Alonzo Duralde. Oh, nice. Um, who is apparently a big fan. And he, um, uh, I guess he he talks about it. He used to program in the 90s. He used to like help program a film festival. I can't remember which one in Texas somewhere. And he wanted to get John Waters to come as a guest. And John Waters didn't want to because he didn't have anything to promote mm-hmm. at the time. And Lonzo Duraldo was like, well, I know you love Boom. If I got a print of Boom, would you come introduce it? And John Waters was like, 
sure, but you're not, they're not going to give you a right. print. She, he got a print. John Waters came and introduced it. And then John Waters essentially spent the next year of his life taking this print to different festivals and introducing it. He became oh, like a, the, a boom spokesman for a year in the mid nineties. <laughs> um, uh, and so, yeah, those are the only two special features, but they're great. Uh, you, you get a lot of great stories, but the movie itself is, I, I mean, it's nuts. It's, and it's very, camp i think is the yeah. to use the word that alonzo Duralde uses in the interview a lot um it's very much that but it's 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 powers of intoxication are not it's not ironic you know what i mean right like it's definitely weird and in some ways very misguided yeah but uh there's a clear intentionality to what joseph Ozzy is doing um and I, I I am so glad that I have this Blu-ray now because I, I it's the kind of thing that I look forward to showing to people. Yeah, you know it's it's interesting. Um, some of the uh, movies that I will be talking about today um, are kind of make some odd choices, and I'm not sure if the choices always work. But some of the other movies that I'll be talking about today play things pretty safe and even though officially those movies are better Mm -hmm. I find myself as I get older and this is not an uncommon idea but just like you know words like misguided and camp is not necessarily a bad thing but like um, a a movie that maybe is not officially that good but it sure is held different and at this point like oh thank god like it just feeling relief at that Uh, something that 10 years ago I would have had no patience for now I relish yeah because uh, I we love see it. movies all the time and so yeah. just not being like everything else is yeah. uh, gonna get our attention unfortunately I can't say the same for our, the next movie which comes out in a couple weeks directed by Riley Stearns it's called The Art of Self-Defense oh okay uh, it that's stars too Jesse bad. Eisenberg yeah. Alessandro Nivola and Imogen Poots yeah I like all three of them yeah and, and, it, and it's a good uh, prim- I think the movie in terms of um, it has a very clear sort of like thesis that it's mm. trying to illustrate. Yeah. Um, and I think that it actually on that level, it does a good job of illustrating what, um, <coughs> I, I guess the, the modern day buzzword would be toxic masculinity, but the idea of masculinity and it being defined in ways that are, psychologically unhealthy, uh, uh, unhealthy, you know? Um, so basically Jesse Eisenberg plays a, a sort of a very meek character who gets mugged and Mm -hmm. almost killed and then, um, decides to join a, to learn karate. Yeah. Uh, and Alessandro Nivola plays the, uh, the, um, sensei sensei. Yes. That's what I'm looking for. Um, and Alessandro Nivola is a very, the movie's, funny i mean it's sometimes way too self-consciously funny right but it's like um he starts trying to take over jesse has his entire life not just about teaching him credit but teaching him to be manly so he's like no you have to listen to metal you're planning on going to paris no you go to germany um <laughs> get rid of your wiener dog and get a german shepherd <laughs> like it's all like everything that he everything about yeah. you can't abide non-traditionally macho right. presentations of masculinity um, and uh, Imogen Poots plays the only woman in in the class. Um, anyway, 
the things that it is saying, I think it says well and illustrates well, but uh, it's way too self-conscious. It's, right. I don't know if you've seen the trailer. I have. Okay, so you probably and picked it, up on the fact that it's doing the um, Yorgos, Lanthim- Yorgos Lanthimos thing. Yeah. Um, but it's not doing it as well. It's very. It seems very self-conscious. Self-conscious, it seems, uh, yeah. It seems sweaty. When I, saw the, when I saw the trailer for it, I had the thoughts like, this could be good. Yeah. But I said that with an emphasis on could be. Yeah. And it has good stuff in it. It is, um, occasionally it's very funny. Um, occasionally it's very dark. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I like that stuff, but it just seems like that this, uh, this style didn't need to, right. It, it didn't need to be defined <coughs> by, by this style. It, it felt, it felt self-conscious. Yeah. All right. Uh, what did you watch? Real quick, actually, where do you think that style started? Because I know the style you're talking about, and I'm not even sure if I'd be able to to summarize it easily, but you know it when you see it. Well, I think of it as Yorgos Lanthimos. I'm sure someone else was doing it before that, but I don't know. I think of, I think of him as the guy who mastered it, hmm. <laughs> you know, because I, I, I like it in his movies. There's, I think, the again, I'm speaking about a movie I haven't seen, but like there's a certain deliberate quality where it seems like everything is very carefully framed, every very carefully choreographed. I feel oh, like I'm, I'm more talking about just the way that the actors are forced to deliver. Oh, okay. The okay. Is that the very staccato? Got it. Okay. Um, you know, no, like no real affect, just very straightforward. I'm okay. saying what I mean. This is what I, there's a certain Wes Anderson quality to that, that, in the movies of his, I don't care for it's. That's usually one of the reasons where just everyone is just declaring things, but not with any real emotion. Yeah, uh, yeah, and I, that's definitely what's happening here. I feel like Wes. I'm not usually not one to defend Wes Anderson, but I think right. he does it better. Yorgos Lanthimos obviously does it better. Yorgos yeah. Lanthimos doesn't already, always do it. The favorite didn't really do it. No, not really. Yeah. Oh, now I just want to watch that movie again. <laughs> oddly good. enough. Yeah. Uh, okay, so <coughs> uh, listeners, you might be able to tell that I'm. Uh, I've just been sick on and off for like seven weeks now. Um, and it's unfortunate just when I start to feel better, uh, I push myself a little bit too far. So in this case, I, my wife and I were in Chicago and, uh, I think I wasn't getting a lot of sleep and I was just hanging out and walking around and, uh, just kind of aggravated my lungs. So, uh, I will be coughing periodically throughout all this. And, uh, one of the things that bummed me out is that I missed, last week's recording about Agnes Varda. Um, I watched a number of Agnes Varda films, um, only to have to duck out of the recording. So I thought, well, you know, I don't want to have watched all those for nothing as though simply absorbing them myself. I know what you mean. Do you know what I mean? Like, but then sometimes doesn't it feel like when you do watch something that you have no plans for the podcast, it feels like you're getting away with something. Like I feel guilty. I feel like when I don't have to review something like, when I went to see John Wick three, I was like, "This is like a little vacation." Yeah, but then you still talk about it. On the you show. still talk about it on the show. Yeah, um, yeah. Uh, there are movies that I occasionally rewatch. Like I've, since oh, I've been yeah, sick, sure. I've been watching some uh, rewatching some stuff, and uh, and I can't even do that anymore. Like I'm not going to talk about the rewatch here, right? But. There might be a Tyler's take coming up, you know, like it's just, I I can't. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so, uh, rather than talk about each individual movie, because I don't want to just be a, I don't want to be a rehash of what you guys talked about. And I might wind up being that anyway. Yeah. Um, did you listen? No, of course not. I didn't think you did. What are you talking about? Are you kidding me? Like, 
I don't listen to us. Yeah, I never. I don't and, listen to episodes that I'm not on usually. Um, but I thought you might in this case because uh, I did think about it. But honestly, it's because I've been sick and because I've been working on this project. I haven't really been in a position to simply right. listen. Like I, I don't have a commute and I haven't been going to the gym. That's usually where I listen to right. things. Um, anyway, so okay, so I'm going to be talking about like all of these movies sort of at once. Yeah. Um, and I'll try not to be too long-winded about it. Uh, so in preparing for this episode, I happened to be talking with uh, uh, our friend Dave Platt. Mm-hmm. And he said something that really struck me where he said that he considered Agnes Varda the most empathetic director maybe ever. Having watched a, uh, more than a dozen or about a dozen of her films mm-hmm. in uh, the last couple months, I absolutely would agree. Yeah, and... That's the thing is like I mean, I said, I, you haven't listened to the episode, but I said to Mariah at the end that if after my deep dive, if I were to make a list of my top 10 directors of all time, Agnes Varda would be on that list. I don't know if I would feel comfortable doing that, but I will say that as you as as I've said on the show and as you know, I tend not to be a huge fan of uh, French New Wave the way people tend to talk about it. And again. I know you're not going to listen to the episode. Mariah's contention is that Anya Svarta, sorry, is not a French New Wave director. Okay. So what I think that there are certain sensibilities that she has uh, that I love and that are certainly unconventional and and self-conscious, but in a good way. Um, you know, hanging a lantern on things, breaking the reality mm-hmm. of the film that she's uh, presenting. Um, and that feels very... And given the given where she's from and the time of and the the era of film history i can understand why people would look at that as french new wave but the way i think of new wave now admittedly like people say well Truffaut is new wave and i do love a lot of his movies except jules and jim which i can't stand which and I that love. one and that one feels the most like french new wave the way i think Sounds of like it maybe you just don't like jump cuts is that the, <laughs> is I'm that not the a, main thing i love the limey that's full uh, of jump cuts it's more just uh I have an appreciation for it, but it's not a thing that I return to. Mm-hmm. Um, at the same time, I love 400 blows. So it's, it, who knows? But anyway, uh, so I can understand how she fits in as far as people talk about it. But I think that she's m- way more invested in her characters than I usually think of when I think of French new wave. Um, and mm-hmm. what I, what I love is that, so starting with, you know, Cleo from five to seven, uh, Chloe, wait, no, Cleo, but I'm saying... Okay. Are you starting chronologically? No, I'm jumping to, okay. like, that's the one that I had seen before. I see. Uh, and that one I adore, I think. And it speaks to this empathy thing that, like, we are watching somebody who is tremendously preoccupied, and understandably mm-hmm. so. And the film feels that way. It feels... It reminds me in, in many ways of, of a movie like Lost in Translation, where I guess, you know, obviously, uh, Cleo from 5 to saving, 7 came first. But this idea of someone doing things because that's what you do, but not being there. Mm-hmm. And, the, and there seemed... And there, it's shot at a distance. It's empathetic precisely by not being too involved in the specific things she's doing. Mm-hmm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. If, if it had really played into all of the individual things that she's doing, like shopping and all that, if it had been too actively involved, as she would be in other movies, uh, it would feel wrong. Um, and so by actually keeping things at a distance, she does more to put us in the emotional state of the main character than 
people immediately think and I, and that it's a, it's a wonderful instinct. And so, uh, talking about, so jumping to, and again, I don't want to spend too long cause I don't, I feel like I'm probably going to be just repeating everything we'll, you guys we'll, said. We'll see. I mean, um, I, I liked your points about Cleo. So, um, and then, uh, yeah, I guess I'm just going to be jumping around in far, as far as, uh, we'll stick with the idea of empathy. Um, okay. So <laughs> lions love, or Which, lions love and lies is yeah. the full title. Yeah, but lions. I like love. to say that last part because it's parenthetical. Yeah. I, cl- I like to whisper it. Lions love. Lions and love and lies. <laughs> um, and that one, initially, the, within the first couple minutes, I was like, I think this is going to be very trying. Um, and then maybe two minutes later, I was like, No, I love this. Yeah, I and love I this and too. I watched. I you know all the way through. I was just. Even though I have, I have no doubt that in life I would find these characters to be insufferable. But yeah. that speaks to the idea of her, like, she is going to meet them where they are. She's going to do everything she can to put you in their mindset. And it's such a, a, a wonderful and sometimes frustrating place to be. Yeah. Um, and, and I said this to you at the, at, the, at the time, like off mic in between coughs, that... I'm a big fan of John Cassavetes. And when I, and I looked up mm-hmm. user comments on uh, Lion's Love, and a lot of people were really frustrated by it. And the stuff that they said is the exact same thing that people get frustrated with Cassavetes about. Um, that, like, it's so unstructured, and these characters don't really let you in while also seeming to let you in, and that tells you everything about them. But even then, that there at the end, I'm starting to give the... give her mm-hmm. credit whereas other people don't and i love that but i also love that she's just well, she's gonna do whatever she wants to do and when the director feels that she can't when the director on screen pardon me when she feels that she can't do a certain scene uh-huh. and so agnes far is like all right i'll do it yeah we talked about that stuff like but, that uh, it, it before you get too far okay I don't want to keep just rehashing, but uh, it's funny. You mentioned Cassavetes because when Mariah and I were talking about this movie, we specifically mentioned the killing of a Chinese bookie. Sure. For a different reason than you're saying, just because they're two very different depictions of the Sunset Strip from around the same time. <laughs> sure, like, yeah, yeah. Chinese, killing a Chinese bookie is very seedy. Yeah. And this is very sort of like, it seemed like warm, even though the movie kind of pokes fun at its pastoralness yeah by uh one of the hair guys i forget which i, I right. can't keep them straight james and Jerome, uh pulling clumps of glass grass out of the yeah. tiny little strip of yeah. the only thing that's not paved in the entire area but and it's, it's still very warm anyway and killing the chinese bookie is i mean that's cassavetti's doing genre and so he's going to do the cassavetti's version of cd film noir type yeah. of thing uh and so this film i just i i responded to it and again just by letting the letting the actors go where they're gonna go but then almost taking her cues which speaks to the, what i'm talking about which is okay well i there's a thing that i want to do as a director my actress is not giving that to me so you know what i'll do it and it's this idea of just being true to yourself even if the instincts feel very wrong and that is the way her her characters are living uh and she's like yeah i'll do that too as the filmmaker and it just feels so very right even though it takes you it takes you out of the actual reality of the film but puts you into more of a thematic philosophical reality um and so i really loved that film uh, I, also, I need, I I need to hurry think, up i'm sorry yeah, no i'm i'm not helping things i keep interjecting but i also think lion's love is the um 
uh, of her narrative fiction films, mm-hmm. it's the funniest. Um, I laughed a lot, especially when they suddenly have the three kids. They like, <laughs> yeah, I would cause they have this conversation about we should adopt kids. Maybe we, should, we could try out having kids first. And yeah, I don't think we ever find out where they got these three kids, <laughs> yeah. but they just have three kids for a day and decide that this isn't working. Yeah. For and for a moment, I'm just like, wait, are they going to accidentally kill these kids? Um, yeah, it's, uh, boy, did I enjoy it. And I really wasn't expecting to. And it's always interesting you know, because her films are not exclusively, but mostly in her native tongue. And so like to have a film that takes place in Los Angeles, it's English speaking, like, and I know that she's fluent, but it does make, it makes one wonder, like, did she feel out of place? Did she almost feel like, well, I kind of have to let them go with it because maybe, uh, they are more in tune to this concept in this story than I am. Um, so anyway, uh, okay. Yeah, let's move on. Sorry. So I did watch a couple of, uh, short films as well. I watched, uh, uncle Yanko and, uh, black Panthers. And did you see either of those? Either okay. Brian uh, loves uncle Yanko. I do too. Yeah. It's a lot of fun. And, and again, this, and it's about her, her uncle who she, I think she either never met or met when she was very, very young. And now it's many years later. Uh, and her uncle is this crazy old artist who lives on a boat and, uh, and he's, he seems like he's going to be crotchety, crotchety and curmudgeonly. And he's not, he's just a very welcome, open, uh, welcoming, open person. Um, and his art is, is interesting. I don't necessarily, I wouldn't say I love it, but I appreciate what he is doing with it. And one thing that I like is again, the idea of, of, and this is a documentary. So I feel like you can do it a little bit easier, but, uh, there's a, a, a scene essentially where, um, where Agnes first meets, uh, her uncle and they, and he's, you know, he comes, he's on his boat and she crosses the gangplank or whatever. And, uh, and he gives her a hug and then they cut and then they do it again Mm. and then they cut and do it again and cut and do it again. Um, and it just, it really underlines like the, the falseness Mm -hmm. of even documentary filmmaking and maybe filmmaking in general and the idea of, but, but it doesn't seem to be doing that in a mean spirited way more than anything. It's like when I think of the care, I say character, when I think of the person of uncle Yonko, um, he's a very authentic person. He's very honest about his art and about himself and about the way he looks at life. And in that moment, it seems like she's almost inspired by him. Like sort of like I was talking about with uh, lion's love that like I th- filming this interaction between the two of us feels false. And even though we're going to do it over and over again, and my uncle is a, is a good sport about it and I will be as well. It feels wrong to have something so inherently artificial Mm. in this short film about a guy who is not. Mm. And, uh, and so it's, you know, stuff like that. I've seen it in other movies and I often enjoy it, but it also can take me out of, it, it can take me out of it in a way that they're not, trying to do but this i think she's trying to underline the artistic process because she is talking about an artist while also underlying the idea of authenticity so once again take the style of her filmmaking is being taken from the 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 subject um okay black panthers is a fascinating documentary um and it, again it's it's a short film but uh this is one and where this is from the same period as lion's love 
Uh, yeah, right? yeah, late sixties. Yeah, she has. I think two L.A. periods: mm-hmm. late sixties and the early eighties, where she made Documentur, which I haven't seen, and okay. Vermeers. So this is from the first okay. L.A. trip. I guess. Yeah, and I mean, this one is uh, Black Panther is mostly like up up north. Right. Um, oh, sorry, I should have said California. California, not, not uh, and it's it's very. It's very interesting in many ways. It's very straightforward, um, and she just lets the lets the the people on screen talk for themselves. And and and, but where I find it fascinating is the narration. You know, you have these these uh, Black Panthers who are uh, often often the guys on screen are like very forceful, and the narrator. I don't think it's. I, I don't think it's uh, Agnes Varda herself. It is, but it, it sounds like this very proper and petite mm-hmm. white woman. But she's saying all the stuff that the Black Panthers are saying, <laughs> and and it's it, it's a little bit jarring at yeah. first, uh, and because she's just saying these things, and so she's saying like she establishes early on that uh, Black Panthers refer to police as pigs mm-hmm. and then she just calls them pigs at that point <laughs> and you're like this is very jarring um, but I love it because it really shows that like I'm gonna I, I'm going to engage with them completely with their language I'm going to just accept it rather than rather than almost undercut it with the way the narration is going to be I'm going to just accept it because frankly I'm sure that these the, the people on screen are used to be question, used to being questioned all the time in the stuff that they say, the terms that they use, and she's saying, "I'm not going to do that. I'm going to use the mo- the 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 most idiosyncratic narrator, but I will take my cues from them, and I think you, the audience, should as well." So once again, I think she makes a very interesting choice and one that I think is born out of empathy. Hmm. Um, so uh, so those are the two short films that I saw documentaries. Um, I'll jump to uh, La Pointe Court. Yeah. La Pointe okay. Court. Um, or it's probably La Pointe. La probably. Pointe. Yeah. I, I feel terrible. I'm, uh, you know, and then the other one. I'm trying I, to learn some French because I'm going to Paris. Uh, indeed. Yes. Uh, yes. This fall. So yeah. uh, I haven't gotten to that. Okay. <laughs> but uh, uh, maybe say yeah, La Pointe just, Court. Just learn all her titles. Everyone just speaks <laughs> in those terms. Um, and this one was interesting because. And I don't mean to, to to make empathy like my central thesis. Like not like not every director only ever works within this idea. But it did force me. But thinking in those terms forced me to look at everything through that filter. And I think this one is really fascinating because you know you see this uh, this couple who have this history, and it's been a while since they've seen each other. And the way they talk is almost philosophical. It feels very last year at Marienbad in a lot of ways. Well, Alain Rene edited the movie. Uh, it makes sense. This is uh, we talked about this by the way. So this is the Point Court is Agnes Varda's first movie. Okay, nineteen fifty five. Um, so four years before, mm-hmm. uh, four or five years before the new wave really starts. Okay. Um, she was not into movies. She was a photographer. Hmm. She wanted to make a movie, but she doesn't, I think that's part of why she, uh, doesn't, doesn't fit into the new wave. Cause the new wave is very like the directors who are very steeped in cinema. Well, yeah. She's I mean, the many of them she, started as critics. Yeah, you know. She was not uh, interested in cinema. She picked up a camera and made, uh, th- this movie, um, and there's another thing I was going to say. Well, I, I definitely he, believe he, that with this one, actually. Uh, it feels very... Yeah. It, like, the, it feels like still photos that the characters happen to be moving in. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, no, I think you actually got to the point I was going to say, which is about last year at Marionbot, that it's clear that, yeah. uh, I mean, Alain René might also be uh, on my list of greatest directors of all time, mm. but it's it seems clear to go straight from this to to Marion Bud to realize, uh, oh, he yeah. learned some things from Anya Sparta. Like, she, yeah. uh, he, she established some certain methods of framing yeah. uh, and blocking, and uh, yeah. And what I, here's the thing that really struck me. So I, I'm, I'm invested in the couple. I, I, I like what they're doing. Um, but we don't only stick with them. Yeah, we also see. Start with them. We, we start don't. With the, yeah, the fishermen, the fishing family, and the fact that we keep coming back to them. Yeah, you know, it could be argued that this is an ensemble, but what I like is that you know the way even back then, maybe especially back then, the way we watched movies is like, okay, we have our clear protagonist, and here we have a man and a woman who are romantically involved. Obviously, they're our protagonist. Obviously, uh-huh. and. And I think that she is very, once again, empathetic to them. But I think she's also saying like, well, they're not the only people in the world. <laughs> like, I don't have to just be empathetic to them. Yeah. Because often in, in movies, like, they're the leads. And so the supporting characters are only going to be allowed to do so much. Yeah. And they're only going to be allowed to be so dynamic lest they steal the thunder from the leads. And here, no, she's going to flesh them out and they're... Uh, issues, their dilemmas, just as much as as the leads. In fact, the leads remain mysterious, which I think gets us more invested in them. Um, maybe mysterious isn't the word, but you know what I mean. Like they're not spelling everything out. Like we have to fill in a lot of those blanks. Um, and then the but the, like the, the fisherman family in in the village, uh, we're actually given a much clearer idea of yeah. their problems and their dilemmas, and so. I mean, I lo- I feel like that's the kind of choice, you know, as you said, yeah. I, I knew it was her, her first film. I don't think I knew that she was coming at it from a completely different perspective, but I'm not surprised. Um, yeah. Well, I think, um, I, I don't normally like to get too biographical about mm-hmm. uh, things, but I think you can see, you can see the woman in the couple as being a stand in for sure for Agnes Varda. I think she. And, I think she has a number of stand-ins in her movies. Um, yeah, very much. She makes movies about her own life. Mm-hmm. Uh, she uses her. Yeah. She uses her home as location in uh, in both documentaries and nonfiction mm-hmm. or non-documentaries. But um, what was I going to say? So I think. So the man is from that this area. Mm-hmm. The woman is from the city coming out right. here. So I wonder if if she's. If Anish Farda is the woman, is this is that other half of the movie her attempt to understand the place that she doesn't under, that she's not? It's very isn't. possible. It's you know when you go and see your yeah. when you met Natalie's family for the first time, or or I went back to Minnesota and like you know, and uh, I remember I was hanging out with Jen and her friends uh, when we were dating, and yeah. and uh, they made fun of the way I said boot. Uh, not a boot. No, that's that's different. Like the, than, yeah, the because they say boot, and so and par, and they're making fun of me. And Jen yeah. was just enjoying listening to them. To which I then said, "You realize that this is the only instance where you can make fun of anybody yeah. else. Yeah. The rest of the country, if not world, is yeah. making fun of the way you talk." And then you all played a spirited round of duck, duck, gray duck. Oh, absolutely, <laughs> absolutely. <laughs> By the way, my wife still to this day can't. I can't say the word college without her repeating it back to me. College. College. Because I don't say. <laughs> that's the thing. I've gotten rid of my, I've gotten rid of a lot of my accent. Yeah, I don't hear much of it. But that word, I, I can't make myself say it the way, like the way that I'm like, 
college? How do you say it? College? I don't I, Just start saying university and you'd be real classy about it. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. But I, and I know I've said this on the podcast before, but was it 2014 or 2015 when uh, David Fincher made the movie based on the Gillian Flynn novel? Gone Girl. Oh, Gone Girl. That's Gone right. Girl. Yeah. <laughs> it's so fascinating. I mean, because it's not a Chicago accent. No, it's Midwestern. It's Midwestern. Because yeah. uh, I don't do the St. Louis specific thing. Right. Which is to say Highway Farty Far. Farty Far, yeah. You eat with a, a fark and a spoon. You wear your shorts yeah. when it's when, when it's hot outside. Yeah. That's yeah, yeah, my dad talked like that. Carnelia. That's the first street we lived on. And for a long time, that's what I thought it was called Carnelia. Yeah. And not Cornelia. Because my, you heard my dad say it first. Yeah. yeah. Um, so anyway, uh, yeah, I, I really, I really loved that film. And again, like she just has, oh yeah. So it's nearing the 4th of July. So, uh, you're going to hear fireworks for the next, I'm going to say eight weeks. Um, you say that as a complaint. That's fun. It's, you know what? I'll say I this. I like fireworks. It, it, it bothers my cats. Oh yeah. That's, um, that's and sometimes it's a lot closer than that and yeah. it sets off car alarms, um, which is off putting, yeah. uh, at 1130 PM. Don't get me wrong. I still go to bed at like 2 a.m., yeah. but on principle, it bothers me. Anyway, uh, so yeah, she. it's so interesting. She makes unconventional choices that, going back to what I was saying before, like 10 years ago, I don't know if I would have liked any of these movies. I, I, had, seen, I had seen Cleo, and I liked that, but um, I don't think I would have liked any of that. Now, it's so refreshing and fun and, and challenging and engaging. Um, similarly the film that I did not write down here. And I only know, I only remember the English title, which is happiness. The Bonheur. Yeah. Uh, the which French word for happiness. Yeah. Is boner. Uh, <laughs> feels appropriate. Um, made that joke uh, oh, okay. on, the, okay. on the podcast too. Well, you know, so nice. It needs to be said twice. Um, and this is my, uh, I think Le Bonheur is my favorite of her non documentary. My favorite, my favorite movies of hers are all documentaries. It's daguerreotypes or daguerreotype. Mm-hmm. The Gleaners and I and the Beaches of Agnes are probably my favorites okay. of hers, but this is my favorite non-documentary. Do you, okay, I, re- I really responded to it, not the least of which, you know, for any number of reasons, not the least of which is that the main character looks so much like Bill Hader. It was like, <laughs> like I was like, well, what the yeah. hell? What is going on here? Yeah. Um, but uh, I really liked it, and I, it's so interesting. I don't think of the film as cynical. And yet, on paper, I think it could be seen as cynical. I think I do see it as a little bit cynical or a little bitter. Um, but also, uh, I think in a, I think there's something also a little sadistic about the first act. Especially. Sure, absolutely. The, the family is so happy. Yeah, the mu- keep, the music is like yeah. this bubbly kind of thing. And she, I know she's doing it intentionally. She keeps making you think something terrible is going to happen. Either mm-hmm. like... You know, the, you see the kid in the car, like, yeah. and you're like, oh, shit, they're going to get into a car. Accident. It feels like it's going to be funny games uh, or something or, like that. Or, like, um, <coughs> they work in that workshop, you're like, someone's going to lose a hand yeah. or something yeah. to these saws. But, nope, they're just going to drink some wine and eat some bread. And, like, it's so happy yeah. that I think she is having fun making us think something terrible is going to happen to these people. And then when yeah. it does and happen, it does, it's not it's, the thing you think. Yeah. And then by the end... <coughs> You know, this is of the rare Agnes Varda movie that you can't spoil. But then, by the end, something more along the lines of what you thought was going to happen right. happens. Something truly and, terrible. Happens. Yeah, and yet the way she deals with it is not what one would expect. Mm-hmm. And it is in that it is in the constant assertion of happiness, status quo. I, 
I didn't think of it. It made me uncomfortable. So, and cynical stuff tends not to make me uncomfortable. Yeah. Stuff that I would, I would describe as clear-eyed, like philosophically clear-eyed, the like, this is like, people are so, uh, yeah, and I don't want to spoil it. Well, I'll just say people are so eager to just keep like, to not screw anything up to mm-hmm. keep a, a to keep an even keel and, and keep the status quo going that even if it means like uh, a change in cast or something like that uh that people will just keep that going um, um there we go a close one yeah um well i wonder if it made you uncomfortable for i mean not that this is it's supposed to make you uncomfortable because mm-hmm. agnes varda was especially at this point in her late 70s and early late 60s and early 70s mm-hmm. making a lot of very very feminist minded yeah. films and i do think the the movie does have something to say about um, which member of a heterosexual couple is better equipped to weather tragedy or big changes or whatever because of just the way that because of the way that uh, things are, you you know, whether it be internally or externally, it could be like, Hey, look at these sociopaths. Um, (laughs) Yeah. So I do think she is saying something about that with the way that things. Yeah. I could see that. It's, you know, it's, it's interesting. I, I try to think in terms of historical context. Um, but I think honestly, because it's easier for me to do that when it's an American film, but because I guess part of me just assumes that the idea of like, I guess, second wave feminism just came earlier in France, uh, that it feels like it's not a thing that she's responding to directly. (laughs) Um, but anyway, uh, and then the last film is Vagabond, which I really loved. And again, speaking of cynical, or I would say pessimistic. This was the one, and I like Vagabond, but this is the one that surprised me because I'm like, oh, look at all these humans. She's so open. And Vagabond is like mean, I think, a lot of the time to hmm. me. That's how I feel. Like, I mean, everyone, it definitely is not an upbeat film. Um, but pretty much everyone in the movie, other than the main character and to some extent also the main character, is kind of shitty. They are, but I don't see that. I see that portrayed in a way that is when everyone is shitty, you could look at it as, you know, this is, it's the way I talk about Nashville versus shortcuts. Okay. Mm, okay. Everyone's shitty in both. All right. Uh-huh. Uh, but in Nashville, I see it as a, a loving view of people's flaws and, and a, and a sympathetic or empathetic view mm-hmm. of like, like, Oh, if oh, I wish these people, could find it in them to be better. Um, as opposed to something like shortcuts where it's just like, fuck all these people, <laughs> fuck Los Angeles. Um, and, and vagabond, I, I view it that way. I see it as like, it's all so tragic, not just the, the main character. Mm-hmm. And I guess there's no spoiling here because it, it says it starts with her, yeah. de- her dead body. Yeah. Um, and I think it sees as like, there's something that drives her to do what she is doing just as there's something that drives everybody else to do what they're doing, not to imply that nobody is at fault when they do something wrong. They are, but that it seems like I don't see it as an angry film. I see it as more of a sad film that views all of this, not just her death, but all of this as a tragedy. Um, and as far, and from a filmmaking standpoint, I really, again, this is one sort of like, like Cleo where you need a little bit of distance because this is a character that is going to keep you at a distance. Uh, so that you can't really totally understand her. Um, but I did also have the thought like, is this again? I mean, there's an, uh, there's a certain degree of autobiographical element in a lot of the films that we're talking about. Um, but 
is this autobiographical insofar as like this is a woman who ha- who by her own admission had like a really good job and just couldn't do it anymore and so opts to get to walk away from any kind of stability um, and encounters people who have at least their own level of stability or their own definition of stability. And she just has to keep going and doing her own thing. And which many honestly, I think is sort of the life of an artist, um, especially an artist like Agnes Varda, who makes films that are kind of outside the mainstream uh, still found tremendous success in it. But, uh, and so I do feel like this is this was a very personal film. It's not about artistry, but it's about being uh, that person who does things their own way. So I really loved all of these movies. I really loved Agnes Varda, and uh, I just I found each film energizing in its own way. Um, and then, last thing um, I'll point out: um, years ago, uh, mm-hmm. we did. Uh, a profile episode on the French director Patrice Lacan. Yeah. I think we both watched and liked the movie Mansour, Mansour era. Yes. And Sandrine Bonaire, who's the star of Vagabond is the female lead. Oh, that's right. From, from that, that movie. That was a long time ago that uh, we did that. Yeah. That was back when we used to do the profiles where you and I were like trying to challenge each other. Like, yeah, I would pick a thing that I'd like to make you watch a bunch of Patrice Lacan movies. You made me watch a bunch of like, I went back when I didn't know Buster Keaton. That's uh, right. That's when I first saw a bunch of, a bunch of Buster Keaton. Yeah. A bunch of Madeline Kahn stuff you picked. Damn right. Um, anyway, Next up for me is a movie I'm very excited to tell you about. If uh, you live in New York, you can see it this weekend. It's opening up uh, other parts of the country over the next month or so. And it is a film, uh, a Mexican film called The Chambermaid, directed by Lila Aviles. It is her feature directorial debut. And the film is so, so assured and so well directed that I was shocked to to look her up and realize this is her first first feature. it is a movie. Uh, now, you and I have talked off mic about doing an episode someday about movies that take place mostly or completely in hotels. Yes. Because I'm kind of fascinated by them. Mm-hmm. And this is a movie that takes place 100% inside a hotel. The main character, uh, the, the actress's name is, um, it's Gabriella. Well, shit. What is it? It's Gabriella Cartol. Gabriella Cartol plays Ave. Uh, and she is a, 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 a maid who has, uh, she works the 21st floor of a 42 story luxury hotel in Mexico city. Um, and the movie doesn't really have a plot to speak of it. We just sort of see her doing her job. We understand that she has, that it, we we come to learn more about her, that, uh, she obviously doesn't live near this hotel. She takes, two hours each way public transit to get to work. She has a young son at home that she uh, is able to leave with, we don't know, a friend or family member or someone, but we often see her talking on the phone to her son or the babysitter. We know that there was a very uh, 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 fancy red dress left in the lost and found and hasn't been claimed and it uh, is her size and she's trying to hmm. see if she can get it. This is a, this is a running thing. Uh, she also, the, the union, I guess, that she works for, um, holds whatever the Mexican equivalent of a GED is, holds mm. those classes, so she goes to those classes. So we just see her sort of routine uh, day in and and day out. And um, it's... it The, the, the movie uh, uh, takes place almost... It's, a, it's in scope. It's almost entirely... <laughs> There are very uh, very few to maybe no close ups depending on how you define a close up. The movie the the camera rarely 
it, it, the camera is almost entirely almost always on on sticks mm-hmm. you know it's a it's a very measured movie but not uh it's not precious either um it just seems to be following the rhythms of the character which are very internal she keeps to herself she's clearly working for her family at home she doesn't really have friends at work we kind of see her make a friend um and we see when she talks on the phone to her son she suddenly becomes a different person mm-hmm. when she talks to her friend you know um in the whole movie the, the the other thing that is uh hanging over her head or not hanging over her head but that she her goal is that the 42nd floor the pen penthouse floor um has, the position is opened up because mm-hmm. I guess each maid is assigned their own floor. She works twenty one, and that's sort of a it's sort of a sign of what your status is within right. the. So she's about halfway up, but she's trying to get to the to the forty second floor. And I won't go into to great detail, but um, the use of color uh, in this movie is um, uh, it becomes stunning once it opens up a little bit, and it needed to it needs to have the part. It's entirely in a very sort. It's a very modernist, you know, luxury hotel. Yeah. So it's a lot of grays and whites, soft grays and whites, mm-hmm. and that's what their uniforms are. That's what everything that they're around is. Um, and so when something like a red or a natural wood type of uh, thing comes into the shot, it is very noticeable. And it, and and Lila Avilas uh, uses it to. Um, really stunning effect uh by the end but really uh i i don't want to uh, i i can't uh, yeah it's not the kind of movie i can spoil because there's not really a plot to it but i think the main takeaway is this is a very promising surprisingly promising debut um and also that gabriella cartol is fantastic it's okay. such a great performance she's in every single scene um next up is a movie that also starts with the letter c and then you have seen <laughs> okay it's called Child's Play. Really? It is the 2019 Child's Play, I am, which you saw. Yeah, that's one of mine. Uh, uh, yeah, so episode. I'm taking one of yours away. I'm um, surprised that you've seen it. Uh, well, I, you know, I love Child's Play. Like, I, I don't think I re- remembered that. Well, I thought um, I advocated for it to be on that's our, true. Um, our um, commentary. Yeah. Um, this one uh, disappointed me a little bit. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> because it's... Uh, partially because it's a New York movie, not, not a Chicago movie. It's not even a good New York movie. The way the child's play is a good Chicago movie. Um, yeah. I mean, honestly, like the movie seems very generic yeah, in a I lot of ways. I don't even know if they shot it. I think they did shoot it in New York. Yeah. I um, feel like, but maybe not. Uh, anyway, um, mostly I think, uh, the movie is, it's not very scary. It has some good kills. If you're a slasher fan, I think it has some creative yeah. sort of, <clears throat> Rube Goldbergian type of kills. At least yes. the first couple, especially, yeah. are are pretty good, and I and, and I liked those. But um, I'll say I'll say one thing I really liked about it, which is they changed how Chucky becomes Chucky. Yeah, he's not. There's no voodoo, voodoo involved. Yeah. He's not. He's not the you know possessed. He's not possessed with the spirit of a right. homicidal Brad Dorf maniac. Yeah, it's just the programming is haywire, and what that what I think that opens the movie up to do in a way I don't even know how much the movie is trying to do this but Chucky becomes a psycho killer because of what he sees Andy enjoying so in a way the movie is kind of a condemnation of like 
tween boys as being like little psychos. That's how I saw it as like, if this kid weren't such a little like ball of rage, right. Um, he wouldn't have turned Chucky into a killer. And that's interesting because I, I mean, so much of, of Andy's frustration is I think a reasonable frustration, uh, with his life. And then what I liked about it, and, and this is a thought I had after I wrote my review, mm-hmm. um, is that, you know, so many movies and this one even references it not very subtly, uh, so many movies about technology and about our, our reliance on technology is like, what if it turns against us? And what this one is, is like, no, what if it's too loyal to us? <laughs> like, it's not like Chucky is not against Andy. Right. He's very dedicated to him, too dedicated to him. And, and I like that variation on it. Um, and that he but he still takes all of his cues from from Andy's frustration and the fact that Andy is a little bit older here than he was yeah. in the original, I think is interesting. Um, well, and I, I mean, that definitely to me adds to my point that it's a, yeah, that this, this is to some extent a movie about how like 12 and 13 year old boys are like, all have monsters looking at them. <laughs> I guess so. I don't know. It's <laughs> that was what I read into it, especially and, once he meets his Andy's friends. Cause yeah, the other yeah. friend is even more of a psycho. I think. Yeah. Um, but I, and then I'll say what I, one thing I really didn't like about it. You got Aubrey Plaza and Brian Tyree Henry. This movie should be funny. It is not funny. It is the, painfully not funny to me. The first, like the opening, like advertisement with Tim Matheson yeah, yeah. and then the, the Vietnam thing, which was clearly, I, I, I saw the film, uh, and our friend Kyle Anderson was there, uh-huh. uh, from Nerdist well, what and was the Vietnam thing. Uh, showing the the oh, uh, that part. Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah and clearly it was meant to be china like a hundred percent i think right there's but you're even, gonna sell the movie in china exactly so, you can't, yeah. so uh those moments uh, like those two things are so overtly funny in 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 almost verhovian yeah. uh type of way um that the rest of the film wound up being so bland and that even, i was like oh they try they give brian terry henry lines that are I think supposed to be funny but aren't yeah. there's a thing where he finds a dead body in a watermelon patch and he makes a crack that I was like I guess I'm jumping A to C to see what the joke is there yeah yeah but then there's also like he does the yeah I'm gonna go like as a joke I hate yeah. that and then also there's a character in the movie who I hated this who gets uh, I think he gets like his jugular sliced or whatever and then mm-hmm. like his like last word before he dies he's like clutching his wound and he goes really and then like mm. I hated that yeah, yeah I hated it's, that stuff and but oh man there, uh, but there was another, speaking of someone bleeding from the jugular there was another death scene that I thought was awesomely hilarious which is the one that results in a little girl getting blood sprayed all over her face <laughs> yeah yeah I laughed really yeah. hard at that um, yeah it's uh, th- there's a lot there's actually a fair amount of good in it and while Aubrey Plaza and Brian Tiger Henry are not funny which I think is a problem but I do think they both do a pretty good job like Aubrey Plaza especially is like a young single mother who's like trying her and like when you see the effort that she goes in that she goes to uh, in order to get the 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 uh, not good guy like the buddy Buddy. doll um, like thinking that her son will like it and then when she like it speaks to like that she's 
not totally in tune with what he might enjoy. Right. And then when he opens it and she sees the disappointment, she pivots and says like, well, I thought it'd, it'd be like a joke, yeah. you know? And it yeah. made me feel very sad for her. Yeah. Yeah. Um, she is good. Yeah. That's true. That's and, true. and the thing that I really respond to, cause yeah, I think the movie is, it certainly is not scary at all really but it's not um, necessarily I mean like look at like Child's Play 3 is not scary Child's Play 3 is just like right let's come up with some yeah. fun sadistic ways to kill people and there are some fun sadistic ways to yeah. kill people there's a thing with the drones near the end that I thought was a yeah. really great idea yeah and it's that's the thing is like it's it's not a film I can write off it's one that I ultimately don't really like that much but uh, but there is there are just all the elements are there. And one thing that I loved, and I, and I did put this in my review, which you can read at BattleshipRetention.com, um, is that Andy, again, he's older, but he still has the mentality of a kid. Like, for example, the role of the garbage chute as... Oh, right, you wrote about this like, in your review. Yeah, yeah. If we... Like, if we just throw something down the garbage chute, it's the same as it going away completely. That is a kid way of thinking. Mm-hmm. Like, any grown-up is like, that's not a solution. Yeah. But he's a kid, and so he's not he's not totally that. I'm, I'm always fascinated uh, in a genre movie of, like, anytime a, a kid is trying to be older or attempting to be older, mm-hmm. but still their kid their kidness comes into comes into play. Uh, that's something that I like. And I think it's something that, that, uh, this movie does pretty well, but for the most part, yeah, it's uh, really bland and no, thank you. All right. Uh, you're up next. Unless, oh, that, yeah, I unless guess so. that was supposed to be your next one. Uh, it was not mine. Okay. Uh, my next one is about, uh, a different type of toy. Uh, it is, uh, this is Josh Cooley's toy story Four. now, David, I don't know if you know or not, but as it turns out, people are very, very protective of Pixar and very, very p- protective of uh, the Toy Story franchise, I guess. Um, <laughs> I saw the film, and it's got a lot going for it. You know, um, I got in a bit of trouble because in my review, the last paragraph says, is the film recommendable? Absolutely. Then I talk about how forgettable it is, but apparently that absolutely really threw some people. Mm-hmm. Um so yes, I gave it, it's a, it's a fine movie in a lot of ways, but I still walked away from it negatively. Um, it's, it is the essence of inessential. Mm. Um, I think that they try to do some interesting things with Woody, but to me it's like the, the series ended so definitively with three that like anything that you any any coda any new adventure really needs to justify itself and they do they have woody go in a couple different places but i'm not a hundred percent sure that those places fit with the character Mm -hmm. and i'm fine with the character growing but i feel like it actually sort of undercuts the previous three films which i think is the worst thing you could have done um it introduces a lot of new characters that are enjoyable but in doing so it shortchanges the ones that we know most especially Buzz Lightyear. I feel like Buzz was given supporting status in Toy Story 3, but still was used pretty well. This one, it feels like he's now like a one-dimensional character at most. Like this was, a, you know, Toy Story was like about their budding friendship. You know, it's you've got a friend in me. Like that's the whole, that's, that's the whole thing. Uh, and it was kind of about them, but also the larger fraternity of toys. And this really doesn't feel like that. It feels like in my review, I said, you know, those those 10 minute Toy Story short films that would precede certain Pixar movies. Mm -hmm. This feels like that, except feature feature length. 
it's still very funny. Um, there's still some really dazzling animation and some fun set pieces, but for the most part, it just felt so unnecessary and so unjustified. Um, and so I didn't really, so I didn't care for it. I ultimately voted it as rotten on rotten tomatoes, which really rubbed people the wrong way. Uh, and so at some point I would like to do an episode about just the, not necessarily the impact of rotten tomatoes. I guess this would qualify as that, but just the fact that people are, I, I really did not anticipate people were very insulting of me, which doesn't bother me because they're, they're (laughs) what they had to say it was suggested that like, uh, Oh, you shouldn't value my opinion. Uh, that's them saying that to me. Um, yeah. but to me, the, what's indicative, what the, what it was indicative of and what it made me aware of that frustrates me is just like people, they were angry that I and a few other critics like threw off the perfect 100% Ron tomato score. My first thought is always like, what do you have fucking stock in the company? Who cares? I'm not stopping you from see it, seeing it. And also it's still a, is a, like a 97, 98%. That's not bad. Yeah. And another thing I think people like <coughs> people put too much, I use rotten tomatoes. I mean, obviously we are rotten tomatoes critics, but I use rotten tomatoes as an aggregator. Of, I use it to get to other, to click out into the, reviews I want exactly read, you yeah. know that's what I use it for is a yeah. portal to I often don't re- even register what a movie's score is but what a what I, I think a lot of people put too much stock in the score and what I need and I said this on Twitter what needs to be understood I think by more people is that a 98% Rotten Tomatoes doesn't mean that that movie is two percentage points away from being a perfect movie exactly what it means is that 98% of critics thought it was at least just okay. Yeah. That's all it means, because it's a binary. It's the so, problem with the rotten and fresh. Yeah. And, and so what that tends to do is it tends to benefit... This is, I think, a big reason why Marvel movies tend to have 90% and mm-hmm. more, because that, that binary tends to benefit movies that are competently made and fun to watch and not challenging. Yeah. You know what I mean? And I'm not slagging off Marvel movies. I like a lot of them. Yeah. Um, but I'm saying whenever people have this like oh there must be some sort of conspiracy because the Marvel movies like Marvel must be paying critics because they're always so well known it just means that the movies are (laughs) basically movies that are more anodyne tend to have higher Rotten Tomatoes scores because there's some, there's less to object to about them. And I don't know what it is about Rotten Tomatoes it's something worth exploring at some point but like there's something about it that that causes people to ascribe nefarious motivations to critics whether it be that oh marvel is getting positive like net positive reviews so these critics must have been bought off similarly with me and some of the other critics uh that gave toy story 4 a negative review they're like oh you just want to be you just want to set yourself aside you want people to click on your thing and i'm like i I didn't i didn't know i was gonna be like one of a handful of negatives like to me uh, because that thing walking out of the i saw it with jen and she was like, yeah, that movie was, it's, it's fine, but who cares? You know, I thought that, that way more people were going to have that thought. Yeah. And incidentally, a number of critics do, but they landed more positive. Yeah, that's all it is. But that's yeah. it. Um, and then you got guys like, it doesn't make it any easier that that guy, James Rokey or Rochi, I don't know how to say his name. Mm. He intention he did intentionally ruin, he admitted as much that he intentionally ruined Lady Bird's perfect score he gave the film a positive review but decided it wasn't good enough to 
he felt that it wasn't good enough to merit 100 percent rotten tomatoes so he intentionally marked it rotten see and that's and i think that's dumb <laughs> because really now dumb. because now you're buying into it just yes, as much exactly. as anybody yeah. else yeah it doesn't mean you know anything. just be true to your one review and that's fine yeah like, that's all it is it's i uh, i was in chicago recently and and uh, a friend of mine um who admittedly i haven't talked to in at length for a while um he he labeled me a contrarian and I don't think of myself as a contrarian. I mean, obviously, everybody likes to be unique, but I don't think I would ever like. I did not choose that rotten rating. Yeah. First off, I didn't choose it casually, but I also didn't choose it uh, knowing that I was going to be the outlier. Yeah. And even if I did know I was going to be the outlier, like that's no. Re- I'm sure some people do that. Um, but to yeah. me, it's like I'm not that much of a contrarian. Like if I loved a movie, I'm fine to be the. I, I'm fine to go along with everybody else. It's perfectly fine. Um, yeah. When we first started being on tomatoes last year, I did, uh, I didn't change what I voted, but I would vote is not what I rated it. Yeah. Um, but I would pay attention to see how my vote uh, again, my rating affected the score, especially like when there were fewer reviews. Yeah. And I remember I briefly turned bird box from, uh, fresh to rotten. It ended up going back fresh. Yeah. Deserves to be rotten. Um, That's correct. And the other way around, I briefly turned escape room fresh. Hey. It, it sent, since also went back to rotten. That's but, too bad. Yeah, but I briefly turned escape room fresh. Um, but then I, I kind of stopped paying attention yeah. Uh, to that now I just like upload the review and do this thing I hit submit and I don't even think about what and it's uh, and it's it's funny because there are this there are these people on on Twitter that like they were so ridiculous I'm like are you doing a parody of this, this type man. of person no not even that that was okay. a comment like on Twitter oh, there are these there are these two accounts that were Taylor Swift fans that was their big thing on both of their accounts one of them seemed to be based in Australia and that person decided uh, to talk about like your review is so shitty and and then said like said it was almost as bad as your book your book was terrible I was like (laughs) I don't ship to Australia Um, and I'm and I didn't say that but then I had other people I had that same person say like uh, I'll give you a $100 Amazon gift card if you switch your rotten to a fresh which was tempting yeah. obviously yeah. but can you uh, do that? what was that i've never done that can you do that switch it i'm sure you can i'm sure you probably can yeah because um, there was the one review one time that went up it was your review and it went up under my name because we're all under the same right, account yeah, yeah. because it's all the same site yeah and we were able to switch that so yeah we could probably switch. i think you can switch it and yeah. uh, but it's like 100 bucks eh. yeah <laughs> um oh last question about toy story 4 <laughs> How's Keanu? How's how's Duke Kaboom? He's great, and I think I think he's a. That's the thing about these new characters. Like when I when I look at Toy Story three, and I look at you know Lotso and and a few of these other characters, mm-hmm. they seem like three dimensional. Whereas the characters, while fun in Toy Story four, the new ones, um, you know, the villain isn't doing anything we haven't seen before, and then Duke Kaboom is enjoyable, um, but there's just not much hmm. to him. All right, uh, moving on. I also reviewed this week is a Portuguese film directed by Gabriel Abrentes and Daniel Schmidt called Diamantino. And uh, it's, this is going to be reductive, but I would very much compare it in a way to Sorry to Bother You, in that this is an outlandish, sci-fi-ish satire. So, uh, Diamantino is the name of, within the world of the movie, he's 
Portugal's biggest soccer star. At the beginning of the movie, he has led Portugal to the 2018 World Cup okay. final. The day before the game, he's out on a yacht with his uh, father and his two terrible young twin si- younger twin sisters. Uh, he's out on, the y- on a yacht, and he encounters a stranded small boat filled with African refugees. And this guy is so... Not only is he so sheltered, he's also really dumb. He's very much like Zoolander. Oh, okay. he's very much like so. The character is very like he's very pretty and he's good at soccer, yeah. and no one ever asks him to think about or do anything other than be incredibly good looking okay. and play and be, be great at soccer. Um, and so suddenly he's made aware of the refugee crisis, and it starts to like him so the next day when he's playing the game he's distracted he misses his final shot becomes his he becomes a shame mm-hmm. he's goes into hiding um and i i can't name all the plot points because it keeps getting weirder it ends up involving um undercover cia agents posting not cia portuguese intelligence agents right. posing as nuns and orphans um there's uh cloning comes in uh uh Men growing breasts becomes a part of it. It's a very like you see where I'm coming from. The sorry yeah. to bother you. Yeah. Um, uh, but event, uh, short long story short is Diamantino ends up getting sort of in a, a Zoolander way becoming a puppet, not to kill people, but in this case to start uh, uh, or to be the spokesperson for a campaign to essentially Brexit Portugal to. Mm-hmm take porch to get people to vote for portugal to leave the 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 eu um and, <laughs> uh, and yeah i haven't even gotten into all the other uh, all the other stuff the tiny motorcycles and sword play there's all sorts of <laughs> weird I stuff mean, it sounds here. like a it's lot, a of, lot fun. of fun yeah i would say negative thing against it here's what i and i i didn't i i, I liked sorry to bother you i would say i feel in many ways the same way because i like sorry to, sorry to bother you i didn't love it because i feel like it's overstuffed but yeah yeah one thing i think sorry to bother you did better is that there's a sense of heightening that sorry to bother you is about one thing for a while and then it seems very clear it's like oh we're done with that one to the next thing. yes we're done with that whereas diamantino does the thing of it it just keeps piling on okay and so by the end there are so many balls in the air that they couldn't possibly be satisfying on yeah. every level so it's a it, I, I think it, it ends a little weaker than sorry to bother you did but uh yeah it's not just about this satire the movie is just legitimately really funny specifically in a visual sense there's a running gag where at their in the enormous mansion that he lives in with his family, they watch this enormous wall mounted TV. But every time you watch them watch the TV, there's a glare on the TV from the equally enormous tacky chandelier they have. <laughs> so everything you see, it'll be like a super important, like news report about refugees or whatever. Yeah. But it's just this big like, <laughs> chandelier in the center of the reflection in the center. That's funny. Um, there's also a thing where like he's constant, the, the everywhere he goes, there are pictures of him because he's such a big star Mm -hmm. and he doesn't notice because he's so oblivious, but he's constantly like he's undergoing this like crisis, existential crisis of conscious or whatever. And there's always like a picture of him in his underwear, uh, underwear on a billboard behind (laughs) him. Or like, it's just, uh, yeah, constant. There's so many jokes. Oh, and there's also a joke. I laughed out loud at this when the uh, intelligence agent turns rogue, decides to investigate the government agency that she works for mm-hmm. and the way she hacks into their files is by running a program on the computer called execute hacking. <laughs> That's funny. Uh, so yeah, there's a lot of funny stuff in it. It's definitely, 
um, far from perfect. Yeah. Um, but what movie is perfect? Uh, yeah, it's a little clumsy, but it's well, not it, Toy Story Four. I'll tell you that. Yeah, but it's a lot of fun. Oh yeah, I didn't even talk about the giant puppies. There's so much going on in this movie, uh, and then polar opposite in many ways, uh, but also um, uh, playing in theaters across the country this summer these is united states 19, yeah uh a newly restored version a new, new restoration of 1968's documentary the queen directed by frank simon this is a documentary about the uh, i can't remember the whole name of it the 1967 all america camp beauty pageant it's a drag okay it's a drag pageant got it but it, it has some like a crazy long name that i can't remember uh but it's a 1967 drag pageant and it's the cinema verite fly on the wall documentary that the first half of it is about the days leading up to you. You see the drag Queens just chatting about their lives or you see them trying out their makeup, helping each other get ready. And it's, it's so, if you watch something like, obviously it's less heightened than RuPaul's drag race, but it's amazing how <coughs> fresh and modern and not antiquated this 50 plus year old, mm-hmm community seems i think we tend because uh queer culture of that time was so out of sight i think and and so where it's less of it has ended up in the cultural record so we tend to think of it as being less prevalent or read like Mm -hmm. but yeah there were there were queer people then too and they had these conversations and they talked about things like coming out, they talk about their, their their families, varying levels of acceptance. There's also, there's a really fascinating thing where they're all talking about, because it's 1967, they're all talking about the draft, and they're all talking about the military. Sure. Um, and how uh, many of them are so, they're so outwardly effeminate that if, even, if, even if they are called, they yeah. never get picked. But then there's... They can go full uh, clinger uh, with yeah. it. But then there's one, I, I never know in this movie whether to say... Well, what gender to use? Like they, they present as male and then they are drag Queens. But then some of them are talking about the idea of sex change operations, which is oh, not what okay. we call it now, but that's right. what it was, what it was called then. So I don't know in my, from a modern point of view, I don't know what pronouns right. to use. So I'm, I'm sorry if I get it wrong, but there's one, uh, uh, young man who is again, very soft spoken, very effeminate, but is talking about how he, he was a drag. He tried to join the military. He's a patriot. He wanted to go mm. fight for his country and was told he couldn't. And he sent a letter to the white house and got and like, he'd said that he got a very sympathetic letter back saying, saying something along the lines of maybe someday we'll be able to make this work for you. It's, it's, it's so strange. I like uh, to think so that Nixon wrote that himself. Uh, would it be 67? Would that be Nixon or that, that would still be uh, that, Johnson. I, I think, think that, that would still be Johnson because yeah. yeah Nixon yeah okay yeah yeah that would be Johnson. Nixon would have taken office in sixty nine yes right yes. yeah okay um, well Johnson uh, too actually yeah, now that no, I think yeah, about yeah, it not, yeah. um, so it's uh, yeah really really fascinating stuff the the pageant itself is um, you think of like oh it's this underground queer culture thing and you think of like you watch the TV show Pose and and what the voguing and that sort of mm-hmm. era was in nineteen sixty seven it's almost hilariously tame. Sure. It's, it's basically just like a small town beauty pageant, except it's, uh, you, you know, um, it, it's drag. Yeah. Um, but then what I didn't see coming is the aftermath because the queen who wins is very young, very new to the scene. 
and also is white, is very feminine looking. Looks looks like a young Ellen Barkin. Um, okay. And uh, and and wins. And at the moment that Harlow wins, another the one of the runners up, the highest placing black drag queen storms off the stage. Then later the cameras come up up to her. She goes in this tirade about. Um, how the white queens are always winning. Then she confronts the organizer and Harlow, the winner, in the stairwell about um, uh, about all these things. And I looked her up, and her name was uh, Crystal Labeja. Uh, that was her performing name. I don't mm-hmm. know what uh, her given name was. Um, and she went on to found, basically, in a lot of ways, she went on to found drag culture as we know it today. Like mm-hmm. as we see it on RuPaul's Drag Race, okay. it was essentially founded by her because her friend actually, her friend Lottie actually says on the video or on the, in the movie, she says we should start our own competition. And that's exactly what she did. And drag culture essentially became what it became because of that. This very, I thought you were going to say like, and that young woman's name was, and it was going to be like someone I knew. Or oh, something. No, no. Uh, um, but still but, important. Yeah. Yeah. So it's really fascinating that this, that this was a, this is a, uh, a, a moment that is, uh, what's, what's what I'm looking for. It's like epochal. This moment seminal was, uh, yeah. Um, uh, catalytic maybe, there we go. is the word I'm looking for that was caught on film and that is very few people have seen it. Uh, I'm really yeah. glad that um, it got restored. It's playing. So yeah, it's opening in New York this weekend. It's playing Outfest in Los Angeles. And then I think it's also has later in the summer, a theatrical release in okay. like regular theatrical release in Los Angeles. Uh, what's next for you? Is it child's play? No. <laughs> okay. Uh, next for me is a film that I saw on the plane, uh, to Chicago and I was excited. I immediately, like when I saw it was available, I was like, this is a film I've been wanting to watch for a while. Uh, and that is Joe Cornish's the kid who would be King. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, which I enjoyed. And that's about as much as I can say. Okay. Uh, I I will say more. Yeah, I know. For a minute I was like, don't, don't let him, don't let him do it. Uh, it's, this is something I've been thinking about more, um, that (coughs) there are movies made for like, there are movies made for adults and there are movies made for kids. Uh, and that there really aren't that many movies. There are plenty of movies that are PG 13, uh, but they are kind of at all ages, but there are the, every once in a while there's a movie that feels like it's definitely for, you know, I was talking about, uh, Andy in child's play being, he's like 12 or 13 Mm -hmm. He's at a, pl- at a place where he's certainly not a kid anymore, but he certainly is not a grown-up. So he still is in this place of transition. And uh, whenever you see a movie that is made for that group, first off, I feel like I don't see it very often. Uh, but The Kid Who Would Be King definitely is, where you know it's about a kid who in, in modern day who is able to like pull the sword from the stone, and he's he's not King Arthur, but he's you know the the heir apparent or whatever. And so, like, okay, well, there's a fantasy element. Obviously, that's kind of more for for kids. But the sensibilities of this kid and the way he relates to other kids, the way he relates to his mother is very, you know, I hate to use the term very tween. Uh, And and I really appreciated that level of, again, I use the word maturity, but nobody, no adult would ever see this film and say it's a mature film. It's not. But 
it is at the right maturity level for that age mm-hmm. group. And I think it really captures that with the characters. I think the characters maybe could be a little bit better drawn. Um, but I do, I do enjoy the film. I think it has a really specific type of energy. Um, I will say that the actor who plays Merlin is wonderful. Like the other characters, like the, 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 the middle school, I don't think that's what they call it, or maybe even junior high. I don't remember what they call it, but anyway, um, again, they are a little bit vague, but he is very specific because Merlin ages in reverse. And so the idea is that this actor looks a little bit older than the rest, but he still looks young, but he has to present himself as not merely, uh, not merely wise, but also quirky and that sort of thing. And I think he does wonderful with it. So like anytime he does, anytime he has to do a spell, he has to do like these hand gestures Mm -hmm. and he does them. So with such confidence they're ridiculous Mm -hmm. but he does them with such confidence because of course he's been doing these for uh, centuries centuries. and so i really think he does a great job uh and it's it's a film that i that i enjoy but i would definitely be curious um to speak to like my the the middle schoolers that i taught and ask like have you seen this film and what did you think because you know i don't actually know if it would be good for people that age but i feel like it's it's in between enough that I think that they would enjoy it. I'm not sure exactly, but, but I did enjoy it myself. Okay. Uh, if I've done my math right, you're done. No, I have one more. Oh, oh yes. Okay. Yes. I didn't do the math right. Okay. Oh, that works out perfectly. So at no point will I have to do four in a row. Right. Okay. I love (laughs) someone pointed out recently that battleship retention is half about labored math. Yes. Uh, (laughs) yeah. Uh, all right. So, well, one half of it is about it's me that. doing yeah that. there we go <laughs> um all right so next movie i watched uh is nick broomfield's marianne and leonard words of love or i should say mariana and leonard is how uh what her name was and it is about um nick what, broomfield who is that he made well I, he's the guy that i have said makes good documentaries about serial killers and bad documentaries yes. about celebrities Got it. so on the one yes. hand he made both the eileen wernos documentaries and he made tales of the grim sleeper right on the other hand, he made Biggie and Tupac and Kurt and Courtney yes. and okay. Whitney Can I Be Me. Not the Whitney one from last year that people liked. Right. The one from two years ago that was kind of trashy. Yeah. So this one is about Leonard Cohen, more specifically about Mariana Inel. Is that her name? No, Illen. What is her name? Um, Illen, yeah. Mariana Illen, uh, who was um, his Le- Leonard's... Leonard Cohen's uh, lover when he was young and friend, lifelong friend. Um, and uh, uh, when he, cause he started as a, as a writer, he never, he, uh, like uh, he wrote poetry and I guess novels and stuff and mm-hmm. um, didn't think of himself as a songwriter until he uh, stumbled upon writing songs and then became uh, very, very well known as a, as a songwriter. So in the early days when they were, he was a young writer, they lived together in this Greek Island that at the time was essentially all artists. Now it's, uh, in Nick Broomfield's voice, a playground for the very, very rich. Um, (laughs) (laughs) but, uh, um, so yeah, they, they were they remained a part of each other's lives in some way for until the end, and he only he, he ended up dying only three months after her. Um, and uh, what I didn't know going in is that Nick Broomfield also lived on this Greek island for a bit, and he and Mariana were also lovers and lifelong oh. friends. 
So that adds a whole new level. Uh, Does it make it more or less salacious? Uh, I, I would say it makes it more, more, more personal and okay. more. There's a reason Mariana's name is first, even though it, sometimes the movie falters by being like. I feel like there's, like there's a part where it's like he must have felt like, well, I can't make a documentary about Leonard Cohen and not include uh, how Hallelujah became a hit, even sure. though. It has nothing to do with this story. It right. feels like a weird departure from the story, but it's just yeah. like, hey, here's this story about how his, you know, n- no one liked Leonard Cohen anymore, and then he wrote the biggest hit of his yeah. uh, his career. Um, so that's kind of dumb. I also, he clearly has the rights to use Leonard Cohen music. There should be more of it in the movie, frankly. Sure. There should be more performances. Um, I kept getting frustrated that, like, they'd talk about a song, you'd hear, like, the first half of the first verse, and then it'd be like, and then I, I'm sorry, that's my Nick Broomfield yeah. impression. Um, is he uh, on death's door? <laughs> he does have this very like, <laughs> it's yeah. not quite like, yeah. Uh, Richard Harris is Dumbledore, but it's, <laughs> um, no, but, and it's a little bit more, I don't know. Uh, I don't know the. it's a little bit less posh. His, his, okay. his accent too. Anyway. Um, so yeah, it's not perfect, but I think it is ev- eventually very, uh, emotional and I think his connection to it uh, helps alright after that I watched oh man this is a movie I was so looking forward to and I love when I'm looking forward to a movie and it delivers okay um, I watched I watched Mary Heron's Charlie Says which is Mary Heron directed American Psycho yeah. Charlie Says is a documentary or not a documentary is a film based on the memoir that was written by the woman who was the prison psychologist to the Manson girls. Oh, so it has two timelines. It has the time on the spawn ranch leading up to the murders. Mm-hmm. And then it has, um, the, this, um, psychologist played by Merritt Weaver. You know her? Oh uh, yeah. 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 Uh, working with the three, uh, three of the, of the Manson girls. Um, and, um, the, there's a very clear distinction, uh, aesthetically, this, the 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 spawn right the time with Charlie is warm bucolic idyllic because that's at the beginning that's how they remember it even though it picks up it's three years after the murders when they start when Ka- uh, Kathleen I can't remember her name uh, Kathleen Fate I think maybe is the mm-hmm. psychologist's name um, starts working with them and they're still totally like that's why the movie's called Charlie says every they constantly they haven't seen Charlie Manson in three years all they talk about is Charlie Manson. Yeah. And so when we're seeing the early days of their time on the spawn ranch, um, uh, it's very warm and the prison is very cold and, and gray. Uh, but of course, as they, the real story of the movie that's fascinating to me that I hadn't really thought about was that these young women committed these horrible murders but it wasn't until the essentially brainwashing started to get broken that they started to realize what they did. Yeah. And so the movie is not just about a recounting. It's about them finally realizing that they are murderers. Yeah. Um, and so some more menace begins to, to come into the picture. You, by the way, you've got, um, the, uh, the main, one of the Manson girls, um, uh, Leslie Van Houten is played by Hannah Murray, um, who Game of Thrones fans known as, yeah. know as Gilly. That's the only thing I'd ever known her from, I think. Um, 
And like I said, you've got Merritt Weaver, you've got Matt Smith as oh. Charlie Manson. Oh, interesting. And then you've got uh, another TV actor you probably don't know of, uh, Chase Crawford, who was on um, and Gossip. Sounds he played, familiar. He played yeah. Nate on Gossip Girl, and I was—he's great. He plays Tex, another one of the one of the one of the men who hung around the, the mm-hmm. Spawn Ranch with all the Man- Manson girls, and um, he's terrific. I, I never really liked him on Gossip Girl. He's one of my least favorite characters, um, and I was really surprised that he was he was so good. Um, but what Mary Heron does is, I think everything that I've just laid out sounds kind of, I guess, cut and dry in a way that it's like about the brainwashing mm-hmm. and then there's this clear scheme of uh, how things, but for a movie that is largely about mind games, mental manipulation, mind control, the movie, even though it leads up to the murders and there's nothing violent in it really until the very end, um, there's a, there's a, constant focus on flesh and bodies. Sure. Um, and so, uh, one of the, I'll, I'll describe one scene. that's very upsetting, but also very beautifully done by Mary Heron. Very early when Leslie Van Houten first comes to the ranch that first night, they give her some acid, they go out and they're sitting around the campfire and there's another girl. Um, I think her name's Sandy. Um, who's also somewhat new and is like a, was like a rich girl and Charlie makes her get up in front of the campfire in front of the whole group and take off all their clothes. And then he goes on this speech. He turns around and shows up. She has surgery scars on her back. So it's mm-hmm. like, all this stuff is like, you're thinking this is all really humiliating. Yeah. And she's like shaking. He has to, he has to have the other girls help her take her clothes off because she's like shaking and she's so scared. And he is saying these things. And then he talks about how he refers to the scars as like the things that her, parents did to her and then they felt bad they did it and so that's why they spoiled her and that's why you're spoiled and then so she makes it about the parents and not so the humiliation she's feeling is about the parents not yeah. about him and then he has all the other girls come up one by one and tell Sandy she's beautiful and hug her and it becomes I almost got tricked in my myself I'm yeah. like oh what a beautiful moment like no that was conditioning and it's so much of it is about flesh it's about brainwashing but the movie is very somatic yeah it's very much about the body at all times um and then yeah i uh didn't know how mary heron was gonna go with the murders uh themselves yeah i think she does a great job of not uh sterilizing them but also not being exploitative they're very upsetting there's a lot of blood but a lot of the actual stuff happens just off screen yeah it's really really well done i was really blown away uh by by the movie it was kind of everything i had hoped i really like mary heron well i don't i mean aside from american psycho like i don't i i can't well before american psycho she did i shot andy warhol right okay yes and then um she's done a lot of tv the only other feature i'm remembering since american psycho i'm sure there's something else i'm missing was the notorious betty page which i never saw oh yeah okay uh, but that was her her too but uh yeah check out charlie says and i will say that this it just it puts me in mind of i don't think i think this is too niche to actually do an episode about but like 
cults and brainwashing and so is fascinating like martha marcy may marlene yeah. is wonderful and i will say bad times at the el royale features oh, you chris that, hemsworth yeah. as this cult. manson type and he is he's amazing not merely in his performance but the writing is is perfect like you have to be a very specific it, it takes a very specific type of manipulation to do this and, and what you're talking about is perfect uh for that i mean it was based on an actual thing but getting like breaking somebody down without you seeming like the villain in fact yeah. you seem like the savior like that's it, it's it's astonishing and and when you have an actor who really can can tap into that it can kind of trick you as a viewer like mm-hmm. as i was watching chris hemsworth in bad times at the el royale i'm like hey, he's got some good points and it's like, <laughs> wait, 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 wait hang on hang on so um okay uh is it yeah it's your okay so uh i saw a film that i have been wanting to see for a while and just didn't get around to and that is uh julius avery's overlord um which is, is the jj abrams produced yeah the Nazi zombie movie or something? Yeah. Okay. Uh, Billy Ray co-scripted as well. Oh. Um, and it is a... The trailer does not really do justice to the film, and so it, like, it, it definitely makes it look like a lot crazier. Mm. <coughs> Excuse me. Um, and the film is crazy, but only in fits and spurts, and then only at the end does it become totally crazy but up until and and only then does it become a full-on horror movie up until then it's simply a different type of horror movie which is a war movie like it's i mean i guess it makes sense why you would not want to make a war movie with a horror sensibility because maybe you would feel that that devalues it. But to me, I feel like, no, that's what it should be right. in the same way that, you know, I don't love 12 years a slave, but I think that Steve McQueen specifically with his sound design, uh, oh, evokes yeah. certain horror choices. And I think it works. It, it helps you to really understand that. Yes, this is a scary, horrifying, stressful, unknown situation for these characters um and it's and so you're on the edge of your seat but and like so well if you're if you're if you're on the edge of your seat waiting for a zombie to come out or just a regular nazi soldier who's just going to shoot you in the head like it's the same instinct so why not stylistically approach them in a similar way and so uh i really appreciated that about it it definitely i'll say this that when you see that trailer, you go and you feel like it, you're, you're expecting a much more unconventional, crazy over the top experience. And it, when it is that it is, but, uh, I could see a number of people. In fact, I do know that a, a lot of people express disappointment because they, they're like, Oh, it's just this. I'm like, yeah, but the way that it is just this, which is, you know, American soldiers and Nazi occupied, uh, France trying to, solve a problem and then this other thing comes in um it's like yes that is more conventional but again the tone of it is it makes all the difference the the tone the sensibility it is a horror movie through and through but it does not become overtly horror until about halfway through sounds cool i i really really responded to it um all right Final two. Uh, I saw a movie I was very much looking forward to. Uh, this is one of the big uh, breakouts at Sundance that I uh, didn't see at Sundance. That's Lulu Wang's The Farewell. Oh, yeah. Um, which is the, uh, uh, I guess, um, first time we've seen Aquafina in a dramatic role. Mm-hmm. The movie's still 
very funny. Um, but it's, uh, I, you know, I, I realized that I had heard so much about it, but I didn't actually really know what it was about because I didn't watch mm-hmm. the trailer. I knew it was about a woman and her dying grandmother. But Aquafina plays a young woman. I, mean, I say young. She's 31 or whatever. Uh, living in New York, her parents... She and her parents left. She's from China. They left when she was like six years old and they've lived in New York the whole time. She's very close over the phone with her grandmother. She finds out from her father or from her parents that her grandmother has cancer and what I guess is a somewhat common practice in China. The family is not telling her that she has cancer, Hmm. that it's better for them to uh, let her enjoy life. And they try to like... And apparently this is not, uh, this would be, and it's even said in the movie, this would be illegal in America to do this, but it's apparently not uncommon, uh, in, in China. Um, and the movie, I think understands it's American audiences shock at that. And then actually makes a number of good cases without, without ever fully coming down because Aquafina's character uh, Billy is her name is just as much American, maybe even more American than mm-hmm. she is Chinese. And so we're seeing, we're seeing all the points of view on this, but it's, um, it's not just a drama about, <laughs> um, this, right. this issue. It's a bitter, very bittersweet comedy about the family spending their, basically they, they use the cousin's wedding as an, as an excuse for everyone because other members of the family have moved away as well. Everyone goes back to China, um, back to Beijing to um, spend a few days with this woman. Uh, and she has no, she thinks it's just about the, yeah. the, the wedding. So it's a lot of like sort of family ensemble comedy. Um, Aquafina's father is played by, I didn't know his name, but he's a very recognizable character actor. Uh, I had to look up his name. I think it's Zima. Oh yeah. He's yeah. great. Yeah. He was, I most recently recognized him from Silicon Valley where he's the, yeah guy who manages the factory in China. Yeah. Um, yeah, he's really great. And he's, he's really great in, in this. Um, uh, I think he was in the actor that I recognized. Uh, but yeah, there's a, a lot of great, it, it really walks a bittersweet line very well without becoming maudlin, which is what I was afraid mm-hmm. of. I was afraid it would be maudlin and I was afraid it would have a sort of forced catharsis in sure. the ending. Cause these sort of things tend to, you know, and I think the movie is aware that, you're expecting that because there are a couple it gives Billy a couple of moments when she's like addressing the whole family at once and you think oh this is going to be the moment with the big speech right. and it doesn't do it and I really liked that um, I will say this isn't really fair to the movie but the response was that I've heard from people was so overwhelming that I was expecting to be blown away a little more like mm-hmm. it's really just it's a really quite good movie okay I just I felt like and everyone said it was like a tearjerker and I would not uh, to me. It's, it's not a sad movie. Interesting. Um, and it's not a tears of joy movie either. It's a, it's a, yeah. Ensemble fa- family dramedy. That's very well made. Very, very well acted. Mm-hmm. I really, uh, yeah, I really absolutely do recommend right. seeing the farewell. Don't take, don't take my saying it's not what I heard it was at Sundance as a critique. It's a really good movie. I just, I, I don't know. Maybe this is, there's just that Sundance glow where people tend to overpraise movies at Sundance. And this is just, it's merely very good. <laughs> and I think the, I think culturally there's, there's an, an element anytime. I think there's a novelty 
when you see like this, this practice, uh, that you say is, is more common in, you know, yeah. in China, um, is something that like that in itself can be enough to like really capture someone. I was going to say not, not capture their imagination, but get them to be like, Oh my gosh. Like it's in a way that's almost enough of a, it seems almost callous to say it, That's kind of a, a good hook. Right. And yeah, yeah. with a hook that good, it's like they're, they're in and they're in for the, the long haul and they're excited about it. And only when you, and so they, it gets, it gets, really puffed up and then you see it's like oh no it's merely a very very good solid effective film uh but yeah it's just not i think i think some people especially when it's when it's like oh this is from another culture how fascinating and they and i think they that plays into the acclaim yeah, maybe. But uh, yeah, the screenplay is really good. The direction is very good. Um, the acting across the board is really good. I, I, I like Aquafina in Crazy Rich Asians. I feel like maybe there's one other thing I saw her in that I can't remember. I never saw Ocean's 8. Oh, yeah. Um, but uh, this is proof that she's the real deal. She's very naturalistic, very believable, um, and very warm uh, and funny. Uh, and the grandmother is hilarious, too. All right, and then the last movie for me, oh, man, this one came out of nowhere. I, okay. knew, I knew nothing about it. It premiered at last year's Fantastic Fest, but it's available uh, on VOD now. Uh, it is a, uh, it's a, it's called Starfish, directed by A.T. White, and it's, I don't know how to describe, it's a, I described it on Twitter as an interior contemplative sci-fi freakout. <laughs> um, the, an actress, Again, uh, this is an unbelievable lead performance. This is a, would be a Dark Horse Award contender if oh. this type of movie would ever... Right. This movie is too small and too weird. Uh, too unconventional. I don't, know, I don't know if weird is the right word. It's unconventional. Um, but Virginia Gardner, not only is it a great, very demanding lead performance, it's essentially a solo performance. There's hardly anyone else in the movie. Basically, Virginia Gardner plays a young woman named Aubrey who comes home to the small mountain town um, where she used to live for her friend, her, her friend's funeral. Her friend has died young. Uh, afterwards, she goes to her friend's apartment after the funeral where she's alone. She goes to sleep. She wakes up the next morning and uh, the world has ended essentially. Oh, okay. Um, and there are alien creatures roaming the town and she gets a tape from Grace, her deceased friend that she finds that tells her I'm, I've been part of this group that's been researching this. We knew this was something like this was coming. Hmm. If you find this, here's how to help. Okay. Everything that I'm describing sounds like a pretty straightforward genre yeah. movie. But when I tell you that there is a good, probably 30, 40 minutes of near silence of just her grieving before any of this happens, like you see her at the, well, I guess the reception uh, after the sure. after her funeral, the after party, the, yeah. the, the reception. She interacts with a couple of people there. Then she just goes to the house, and there's this long section of her at her friend's apartment for all, yeah for a, a, a long time before anything happens. And then even when it does, she doesn't react the way you expect a movie heroine mm-hmm. to react. The movie also doesn't. The movie follows it's some muses down some blind alleys. You know, you and I have often talked about how some of the most compelling and moving movies are, uh, flawed. Yeah. This movie definitely has some flaws. It has some, uh, AT white 
uh, goes some places that I'm like, that seems indulgent or you didn't need to go there. Maybe that's corny. There's definitely, there's a lot that you could criticize about starfish, but at its heart is something that I really feel like a T white needed to make this. I feel like Virginia Gardner is latched onto something. Hmm. Uh, uh, she really latched onto the character and the movie, it, it was a movie that I, I watched when it was over. I was like, Oh, that was a, that was a surprise. I didn't expect that to be good. And this is a couple of days ago and I have not stopped thinking about this movie. Interesting. Since, um, yeah, it's a movie about a grieving introvert, a person who's introverted to begin with yeah. and is grieving who is maybe given the chance to save the world and maybe in the state that she's in or because of who she is may or may not be interested in doing that. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and it's weird. Yeah. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's pretty good. Um, I want more people to see it because I have, you know, we've talked about how like narrative inconsistency in a movie is not, it's not a deal breaker. Yeah. There's a, there's a thing that I don't know if I missed or if the, or if it is a plot hole, I don't actually care, but I want to talk to more people who have seen it sure. to understand. Um, I also want to ask the director. It's always fun when you have like really strong opinions about a movie. No one yeah. has seen or cares about. I want to ask the director because there's a part in the movie where she is out of food in the apartment. So she goes to the, she raids the supermarket and that sequence, <coughs> the music is a song by granddaddy. Okay. In 28 days later, when they raid the supermarket for supplies, yeah. it's a granddaddy song. It's a different song, but it's a granddaddy song. And I was, and I wanted to be like, was this a weird it homage? Ha- it has to be. Yeah. Cause I okay. know, uh, cause I know the song from, uh, 20 days later yeah. that you're talking about. It's yeah. a song that I listened to. It's a really good song. Yeah. yeah. Uh, oddly joyful. And, yeah. uh, yeah, and so when you said granddaddy, I was just like, Oh, so did he just use, Oh no, it's a different song. It's a different song. What are you, but yeah, what are you trying to pull? <laughs> uh, yeah. So definitely I really do do check out starfish. It's worth your time. Don't come back to me saying, Oh, this part was stupid. This just enjoy the movie. It's flawed. Some of the best movies are flawed. Yeah. It's a movie I haven't stopped thinking about in two days.